Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adamsasser. I'm your Jewish film podcaster. And joining me as always, it's Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker, video editor, and a rabbi part-time. Our guest today is a Los Angeles-based stand-up comedian, podcaster, and comic book writer. He has released two comedy albums on Dan Schlissel's stand-up records. His new film, Reconquistador, is now playing festivals, and his comic book, Fair Enough, is available for purchase at fairenoughcomic.com. He'll be at the Jewish Comics Experience in New York on November 11th and 12th. Daniel Lobel, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you, Jews on Film. Thank you for uh, being on here. I'm not 100% sure, Harry, but is this the first Daniel guest we've had? When you, in the beginning, we were asking you if you go by Daniel, Dan, Danny, and you said Daniel, I was like, I'm going to have to figure out how to kind of bounce back and forth between you. Like either of you, when I say something like, oh, like you were saying before, Daniel, both of you could take credit for it. I'm kind of cool with that. Okay. I just go very broad. For a little while, I did a interview show for fun on my only on, it only aired on my Facebook page. It was called Dan's Across the Universe. And it was just me interviewing other people who either go by Dan, Danny, Daniel, Daniela, Danica, you know, any variety of Dan I would talk to. But that's the only criteria for the show was you had to be part of the elite group of Dan's. You know, I, I have a feeling that there is a bond between all people of the same name, but especially a special bond between Daniel's. I feel like I'm living in sort of a Venn diagram here. Harry and I are bonding over our like glasses and hats and Danny, Daniel, you and I are bonding over the fact that we are both bearded and named Daniel. So I feel like this is a perfect like melding of, of differences to come together to talk about this film today. Wouldn't you say, Harry? I actually think it works thematically with the movie. So perfect. I think I think you're leading us off well. Thanks. Yeah. And and, you know, we are talking today about a film called The Rabbi's Cat from 2012 directed by Antoine Delavaux and Joanne Sfar. Daniel, I wanted to ask, what was it about this film that made you say, yes, let's cover this film? It just looked interesting, and I'd read the comic book. It is a, a comic book, you know, for background. There were two parts to the comic book. Uh, in, in English, they came out in both 2007. The first comic came out in 2007, and then the second one was published in 2008. Uh, it was written and uh, drawn by Joanne Sfar. Um, but I had a que another question for you is, you know, as someone who has created a number of comics, uh, how do you feel like the film, you know, benefits from having like a graphic novel uh, to help tell the story? I thought it was really cool. Um, I, I thought stylistically it was very impressive. I liked the illustration, animation, the art in general. Um it seemed like very Hirsch influenced to me, and I, they did have a little nod to Tintin mm -hmm. and Snowy in there. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a big fan of the Tintin or Tantan series. I thought it was, I thought it was great. I thought it was a really great adaptation, and it added a lot. I thought. I think it's interesting as an adaptation. I think most people, when they hear this was adapted from a comic book, you know, when you think of modern kind of comic book adaptations, obviously you think superhero movie, you think some of, some of these other ones, but normally they're taking this, you know, visual format of, you know, kind of drawn comics and adapting it to something more live action, more like, how do you interpret something that's so abstract and weird and strange looking and kind of make it more grounded? In this case, the animation, it's an animated movie, uh, The Rabbi's Cat. So the animation style, and I didn't even realize this until I, and I had never read the comics, but when I looked back, it's very similarly drawn. Like it really is almost bringing to life kind of this static comic book. And, you know, it, 
having not read the comic book, I mean, I'm just thinking about what could this medium have brought. And there's a lot of stuff we're hopefully going to get into talking about just like language and the way that people are always speaking differently and you understand one person, but not the other. And I'm wondering even just how the comic did that. Like, was it writing things in different scripts? Because in the movie, I think there were conscious decisions of when we got subtitles versus when we also weren't mm-hmm. supposed to understand what was right. being spoken. And I wonder how that differs from, and I'm asking you to, how that differs from the comics you know, where that can't be presented, I guess, sonically in the same way. So this is a question for both Daniels, you're saying? All the all the Daniels can answer this. You know, that's a really good question. I don't remember 100% what the, uh, what the comic looked like in that regard. I want to say that maybe the speech bubbles were written in, the, in their respective languages. I could be wrong, but like maybe there was like Arabic script and like Russian, like Cyrillic characters for the Russians when we didn't want to like understand them. Do you remember, Daniel? I will second you're not remembering. Um, <laughs> Thanks for getting my back. <laughs> it's been a long time since I yeah. saw it. Um, so I didn't uh, get a copy and refer back to it before watching the film. So I don't know. It is cool, though. Like the other thing, Daniel Zana, that you mentioned to me before we were recording is that like you just noted the music is very beautiful in this movie. Yeah. And that like really like the score again, like it just lends something. So, you know, I, this is making me want to reach back to the original comic and see kind of how that plays. But there's definitely some exploration that we'll do in terms of language, music, and the way that I think that builds upon and just fits so seamlessly, I think, with the story that's told here that that I think this movie adaptation does that maybe the comic might not have done in the same way. Am, am I the only one who, after seeing it, you know, listening to that music, seeing those different buildings that they drew and, Am I the only one who was like, I want to go to Tunisia so bad? So badly. I have thought that very often. So the film like takes place in Algeria. My dad is from Tunisia and I have wanted to go back. Uh, you know, he left at a young age, probably like seven or so. And he went to Paris from Tunisia when it was like a hostile environment for the Jews. And, you know, not so, unfortunately, it's still not so hospitable for Jews recently there have been a number of attacks and things like that and so at least paris is super jew friendly <laughs> yeah i mean he left paris too and and then went to israel eventually but at least yeah. israel is very jewish friendly oh my gosh <laughs> i got news for you daniel <laughs> such a scary time to be jewish right now it is for yeah posterity when people listen to this this is right after recorded only a few weeks after the horrible massacre in israel where there are still hostages being held and there are rallies all over America and people are not super um, happy about Jewish people right now. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how you guys are. I know this is off topic, but I feel like it needs to be talked about right now because it's like sitting on my soul. Mm -hmm. Um, What are you guys feeling right now? Because I'm feeling a, a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, I'm feeling a lot. I, definitely feel like watching this movie like was like a nice escape for like a, a you know you there was even some you know there's still anti-semitism depicted in the film but there you know the friendship between the rabbi and his shake friend like the fact that they were able to get along and even the two of them like encountered like religious fanaticism and hostility um so it's 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 like woven into the fabric of like most Jewish stories, but like right now I, I'm personally feeling that like, you know, social media is not healthy for me. Like I'm feeling that it's just, uh, so I'm trying to make a positive impact on society in a local level and doing my best to, 
to do that because I think it's you know it's hard otherwise to to doom scroll all the time. Echoing all the above, I I, I appreciate Daniel that you asked this question because it's you know worth acknowledging. This has kind of been weighing on you know I know I'm not only speaking for myself but really all of us and everyone I've spoken to for the last it's been about you know two three weeks since all of this kind of started and you know and that's not even like I I have cousins who like thankfully are you know on the front lines and fighting and like you know really and and for them I can't even imagine but even us so far away just kind of seeing just some of the mounting anti-Semitism and just some of the scary things that are going on. Um, like you said, Daniel, like it's, I think it's powerful that we can kind of not only escape through movies like this, but really feel empowered by it. You know, I'll, I'll probably touch back on this when we get to good for the Jews, but this is just a very proud and celebratory kind of Jewish movie. I think this one like really you just feel strongly. And, and it actually does echo, like you said, there's a little bit of anti-Semitism, but there are scenes that I, you know, that felt a little bit scary and kind of resonant when, you know, they're not allowed to sit at the restaurant. Like he says, right. we don't serve Jews and Muslims here. Right. And there's mm -hmm. this like, you know, cast aside that, you know, everything is cyclical and this, you know, I, what, I don't remember what era this kind of movie is supposed to be taking place and how long ago. The twenties. No, this one. Yeah. And it's just, it sounds about right. And, it's just, you know, it's scary the way we see echoes, but, you know, what we're doing here is just kind of celebrating and championing Jewish movies kind of in the way that we always have and hopefully sharing that with our audience and, you know, at least leaning into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, all the things you guys said are definitely uh, good advice and staying off social media. I haven't done that, but I probably should. Um, I, uh, I will echo that. I know you guys already said echo, but I'm going to echo your echo. I'm going to echo the uh, the escapism of this movie being very refreshing for me. I It was one of the few moments I was able to disconnect from my very heavy thoughts and enjoy something in the past few weeks. And I'm really grateful for that. I really was, it was a great escapism. And... And then last night I read a Hasidic tale because I thought it would be kind of like nice and uplifting. It was about one of the guys who was a founder of Lubavitch, you know, which is where Chabad comes from. And his name was Wolf the Cobbler. I'm like, oh, this will be a nice story of Wolf the Cobbler. Uh oh. Well, he gets burned alive at the end of it. <laughs> oh, God. And I almost cried, even though, you know, I don't know Wolf the Cobbler and I've never heard of him before. And I was just like, this is just our story. It's just so sad. It, he gets burned alive just for being a Jew and not wanting to be forced converted. And it was, it's just, um, it's a very tough thing. Like, I'm feeling a lot of emotions right now, but I try to remind myself to cling to God. And, that I wouldn't be waking up in the morning if God didn't decide that every day. So every day is a gift. Right. And every day is a reason to be grateful to God. And that's what I keep telling myself, and it's helping me get through it. But I say, I remember once a rabbi told me that when I got robbed recently, he, and I was really distressed, he said... um, these kind of things happen because God wants a deeper relationship with you. And he's kind of like shaking you and saying like, Hey, cling to me. You know, I want, I want you, I'm the shoulder to cry on. Mm -hmm. So that's very relevant right now. And I'm glad I got that piece of advice and I wanted to share it with you guys because 
it's been so helpful for me um, to look at things through that lens. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've found that like my experience, like with all of this is just trying to find where my head is at and it changes like every other day. Um, I do find that like these kinds of things, like meaningful conversations with individuals, whether that's like a one-on-one conversation in person or virtually or like through messages, like helps to kind of unpack a lot of my feelings. Uh, I do find that like a lot of posts tend to like flatten things and create this sort of false binary where it's like either you're rooting for this team or you're rooting for this team. There's no nuance and you have to be, you have to pick a side. It's terrible that people are losing their lives over these things. And I want it to stop, you know, as soon as I, you know, as soon as it's safe for everyone, but it's like, it, yeah, it's, it's just really tough to unpack all of this stuff and, and to kind of make sense of everything. Uh, all while trying to work a job, while trying to raise a family, while trying to be there for your partner. It's, 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 it's a challenge, but yeah, like you said, I'm glad, you know, go back to the basics. I'm glad to be healthy. I'm glad to be alive and I'm grateful for that. So, yeah. And just, uh, you know, I hope you guys in the audience kind of forgive me if this seems a little bit trivial and I totally respect if people, you know, can't engage with art in the same way right now when things are going on and when people are more closely related and that makes sense. But you know, as someone who really does connect with it, with art, movies and comics, you know, we're talking about this, this podcast, like, like we said, it, I, I think it's more than escapism that we got from uh, the Rabbi's Cat, which I would highly recommend to anyone if they want to watch, because it really is kind of this very powerful, exciting. And, sure. you know, when you were talking about kind of the cyclical nature of just unfortunately, the suffering that we've endured, like the we just published onto the feed, you know, yesterday, as of this recording, our episode on the pawnbroker, which if you haven't seen or if anyone has listened to that episode is just about kind of reckoning with that eternal kind of cycle of suffering that Jews encounter. And you can connect with a movie like that and just, you know, feel some, I don't know if it's comfort, but just awareness of kind of what's going on. And then you can put on a movie like this one, you know, the Rabbi's Cat we're watching and just feel, I don't know, this movie just, it doesn't like, and we'll talk about this, but it doesn't like, you know, push its Judaism into your face. It just kind of lives with it. And this mm-hmm. rabbi is just this very endearing character. And this, even this cat, you know, who starts speaking to him and, you know, asks to learn the Torah and starts asking some, you know, challenging, but ultimately like, you know, telling questions about, you know, the faith and the way they have debates. Like it's just in in that way, watching it for me was very celebratory of, you know, Judaism. It, it kind of, I've been saying like it during this scary time, it's one of those things among others that have just reminded me like, you know, what this is for. Why do we do this? And why, why do we practice this religion? Why do we fight for Israel when, you know, there's so much unfortunate consequences associated with it. And, and this movie and this movie, and we'll talk about it in the discussion, but it's all about, you know, painting and art and capturing the real world and how you can kind of connect over that. So, uh, you know, again, forgive me if this is not something that you can engage with right now. If people are really suffering, maybe you probably haven't even listened, you know, clicked on this podcast if that's you. But, you know, for those of you who can kind of have make space for that. But um, but with that, do you think, Daniel, we can jump into the context corner absolutely. and actually make our way into the movie? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Yeah. So uh, essentially, like I was saying before, you know, the the film is based on a graphic novel or comic book, depending on your depending on your you know, whatever you want to call it. Where are you coming uh, from? Sequential art, uh, if you will. Um, it's based on a comics graphic novel by uh, Joan Sfar, uh, an Algerian Jew. Uh, fra, um, and he, he wrote two comics in, in the U.S. They were published in 2007 and 2008. They kind of took those two comics, mashed them together into one sort of larger story, taking out sort of key elements um, from the comic. And yeah, you know, 
he partnered up with um, Antoine Delavaux, who owned like a uh, animation studio. So I think Joan Safar and him kind of collaborated. And he said something uh, very charming in French where he was like, basically every time um, I would talk to them, uh, the animation department would yell to the other director and then he would have to go like fix the problems that I created. So it sounded like they had a fun working relationship, it, you know, creatively, I think maybe uh, John Safar has also done a number of um, live action films. He did like a adaptation or a biopic of Serge Gainsbourg, who was like a French singer. Uh, he said he had never been there before uh, to Algeria. Um, and he wanted to kind of like recreate what his uh, parents and grandparents experienced and, you know, only knew it through pictures and things like that. So he did a lot of research to kind of depict the, um, the, the Jewish community in Algeria at the time. And yeah, I think that's about it for me in the context corner. I'll keep it brief so that we could kind of get to an IMDb summary from you, Harry. What about, what do you think? Yeah, here it goes. Set in Algeria in the 1920s, a rabbi's cat who learns how to speak after swallowing the family parrot expresses his desire to convert to Judaism. Yeah, I mean, that accurately depicts what's going on. Daniel, do you feel like you get the gist of the movie from that? Yeah. What's interesting is that the fact that he wants to convert to Judaism only plays a pivotal role in the film for, like, the first little bit. And then disappears pretty much completely, reappears at one scene later on, and that's it. It's kind of... I don't want to be critical because I very much enjoyed it, but it, it is kind of a disjointed theme, I think. I think I read that before watching the movie and expected kind of this like good faith, earnest cat really trying to learn about the Torah and then try to convert. And it's it's a lot snarkier than that. It's a lot more... You know, I guess like black comedy kind of in a way. Do you think yeah. the cat was a bit of a heretic uh, or do you think he was really like um, just somebody on a path? You know, I, I think the movie doesn't represent him as being like undermining so much as just questioning and challenging. And I think there are some questions he might take that are a little too far. Like, I think there's that first conversation he has with the, the guy who's going to be his bar mitzvah teacher and who kind of who's, who's rejecting teaching him his bar mitzvah because he's a cat. And I think I don't remember, but at one point in the conversation, things get a little bit extreme and he goes, just get out, you heretical cat. But a lot of the right. other conversations he has, like there's a great one about you know, the creation of the world where, you know, they say, uh, his, you know, the rabbi says the world was created 5,000 years ago. And he says, but carbon dating proves that it's way longer. Right. And they have a whole debate. He goes, oh, maybe like the days were longer then. And he's like, okay, I'm okay with that answer. Like, right. that to me was honestly. Did carbon dating exist in the 1920s? No. Yeah, I thought that was a little bit. I uh, mean, there's a talking cat. So I feel like we should probably the, the movie's ridiculous. just a little bit of yeah. disbelief, you know. But he, he does say, like, I want to be Jewish because um, then then you will allow me to be a good Jew and be with Zalabia, your daughter. So he has, like... Right. Who's, who's know, the cat's, like, real owner. His mistress. He like, he calls mistress, her mistress. Calls but, her. like, yeah, Zalabia is is uh, the cat's... Um, the rabbi's daughter and the cat's owner and things like that. And he loves, like, rubbing against her and, like, getting pets and getting, you know, pampered by her. So that's really like his cat. motivation. But I think uh, on his quest to become a good Jewish cat, he really understands the assignment and argues with everybody with these very like Talmudic uh, sort of, like you said, Harry, with all these retorts and things like that. So exactly. Yeah. 
Um, well, I think, you know, just to speak to your disjointed piece of it, I think that's sort of a consequence of taking two very large stories and kind of mushing them into one like 90 minute or two hour movie. Like there's a huge subplot in the, or a huge plot in the first comic about how Zlavia marries like a Parisian Jew who's very religious. And then they kind of have to come to terms with he has like very different French traditions and she has Algerian traditions and he's much more religious. And so they have to sort of figure all that stuff out. I think everything from like the Russian in the book box and on is from the second comic. So that's why it seems sort of separate. And I think the way that they stitched it together is it functions, but it's, yeah, like you said, it is a little bit, doesn't quite connect hundred yeah. percent. I have a really old car in the garage, Harry, I think all three of us should get into it and take a break, get into the desert and get to the next section. What do you think? <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. Well done. It needs a little bit of work, but I think you can handle it. All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back and we'll kind of get into some of the themes depicted in the rabbi's cat. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Daniel Lobel to discuss the rabbi's cat. Harry, I'll toss it over to you. Sure. So I wanted to first start talking about the way language and speech are kind of used in this movie. I mean, obviously, the premise, uh, for those who don't know or don't remember from the description, is this cat learns how to speak and all of a sudden kind of bridges this communication gap. And they ask a lot of, they, they talk about what, you know, the cat has been thinking, what it knows, and kind of how to connect. But this movie deals with language in a whole number of different ways. I mean, there are, um, there are a bunch of characters that show up with di speaking different languages. There's this premise in the beginning where the rabbi needs to learn French, needs to be able to kind of write French so that he can uh, get kind of uh, approved or recognized by you know the French government. There are uh, there's this character who shows up speaking Russian and no one can understand it, and then the cat kind of becomes this kind of intermediary. And you know there's a number of different uh, scenarios that I'm probably not listing, but. There's this discussion of about the way language, you know, and the capacity for language can connect us, distance us, and you know, specifically how speech itself, you know, can kind of be this mediator for, uh, you know, within the movie. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on how you also saw that kind of manifest in the movie, and then as this is Jews on film, I think there are directions we can go in with the way that kind of speech has always been recognized, you know, within Judaism. I, I think there's a line in the movie, even someone says, oh, like, you know, we're just going to like, there are two kind of sides that are fighting with each other. And someone says, oh, you know, Jews, like they fight with their words, kind of that's how they break it up. So th there's this emphasis on speech and words and and language and just wanted to hear some thoughts on that. So if anyone wants to jump in with, uh, with what comes to mind when I kind of throw out all that, please do. Sure, uh, I'll jump in. One thing that I thought was particularly interesting was about the relationship between the cat, the rabbi, and his daughter um, when he can start speaking and the problems that it created. Mm -hmm. And there's this kind of pivotal line, I thought, in the movie where the rabbi turns to the cat and says, I liked it better when you couldn't speak. And the cat <laughs> says, yeah, I also liked it better when I couldn't speak, which doesn't sustained throughout the film because he does lose his speech and then right, right. and then really does want it back but it wasn't really explained why the cat liked it better when he couldn't speak i guess because he could be with his mistress i suppose oh yeah yeah i thought that was really interesting about how just the fact that he now spoke changed the dynamic so much the whole relationship became so much more complicated um when he didn't have the ability to express himself 
or they didn't know what he was processing or what he wasn't. Everyone was more comfortable with the situation. It also reminds me of it. I think it changes things for him. He mentions that before he could speak the cat, it, his dreams completely changed. He went right. from having these very simplistic dreams about, you know, chasing a, a mouse, kind of getting it and, and waking up. Sure. And then he had these much more complicated dreams about, you know, losing his mistress and her getting sick and how that in, uh, impacts him. And then, you know, her father, the rabbi, kind of getting all depressed and not being able to comfort. Like, I think everything you were just saying about how much more complicated and complex things get, you know, that happens interpersonally between the characters, but also within the cat itself. It really reminded me of, you know, I have two little girls and a four-year-old and a almost two-year-old. And there's something so beautiful and innocent in the simplicity of the way, especially the four-year-old speaks because the two-year-old is only starting to speak. She just says things differently. Like she goes, oh, so that's how you don't say that. Like, I'll be like, go to bed. She'll be like, oh, so that's how you don't say that. You should say, please go to bed. I'm like, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Please go to bed. Right. Um, so that's how you don't say that. And then just like how she perceives the world so innocently, like um, we were driving and she got so excited. She's like, daddy, 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 daddy. I'm like, what? She's like, there's a rainbow flag. And I'm like, she's like, there's a flag with a rainbow. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'm like, what do you think it means? She goes, I don't know. People like rainbows. I'm like, yeah. She goes, but some people don't like rainbows. And I was just thinking, you know, how complex uh, societally that flag is for, sure. for, you know, how it can be so uh, divisive for some people, how it can be comforting for some people, how, it, you know, like it's, it's, um, it's so politically heavy. There's so much about it, but to her, it's just a rainbow. And I loved that. You know, I was just like, it reminded me, I don't want to ramble on, but it reminded me, I had a friend who was a musician named Seth Glass. He passed away last year, sadly. Um, but he had a great song um, that he wrote when he was, you know, probably around late 50s about seeing the world through the eyes of children. And one of the the lines is just like, um, Basically, the, the song says, uh, you know, the eyes of age are hazy and glazed. And uh, it seems as though gray is the only color they see. And he goes, the rainbow slipped away. And I was like, oh, the rainbow slipped away. Like, I, I, I could, like, I'm missing out on so much joy, which is just innate to human beings, because I'm just not appreciating simple things like the way my daughter could appreciate that that LGBT flag. Like, she just saw it as a beautiful bunch of colors and and i missed it you know and i i missed you know to me it was just you know it's a flag that represents that you know but i just missed enjoying all the colors that i drove by you know I, you just you miss so much of what's naturally beautiful about the world as things get more complicated as your speech gets more complicated as your thoughts get more complicated um you kind of lose out on on a lot of things that should make you smile throughout the day i think so would you say that the cat has that sort of innocence and sort of that four-year-old perspective on on things initially and then he loses it and then his right. dreams right. go dark and yeah. like yeah. and and he and he wants to get rid of speech right 
I think it's not just speech that he he wishes he would ha- had his innocence back and just enjoy right. being a cat and purring and and rubbing up against people. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that like you know, everyone benefits from the cat having speech in the beginning because like Zlabia gets to have a a really nice book read to her by the cat. The rabbi gets to like study French with the cat. The cat is like teaching him or reading French to him so that he can dictate it and write it out. So like as much as they like think that his speech is like an issue, I feel like it it initially benefits them and he's able to like talk sense into a lot of people and things like that. So despite all the other rabbis calling him like shaitan and like a, a an evil thing, like I think, you know, it, it can it proves to be beneficial for that for that group somewhat. So, yeah, I mean, as you know, as the the cat sort of progresses in his journey and he meets more people, um, how do you feel like the perception of, of his gift is is received uh, throughout, you know, whether it's with the Russian or with the the folks in the tent in the desert? Um, do you feel like the reception evolves over the, the course of the film? It's. It's interesting because as you're going through those scenes, I'm tr- I'm thinking about when he doesn't talk, right? Mm-hmm. Like that scene in the the tent, that kind of very probably the the dramatic high of the movie, which is when you know several people are killed and there's this really intense standoff with this you know tribe of I don't know, tribe or this group of kind of these these radical Muslims is how they're described uh, in the movie. And you know the rabbi even points this out, and I noticed it, but the cat who had been kind of this intermediary, this translator isn't translating anymore, right? Like the, the rabbi makes a comment at some point that the cat, you know, was like the previously would have spoken and snar- was made a snarky comment, but was actually good this time and kind of kept quiet in the corner. And I was also thinking about the ending scene when, you know, eventually kind of on this journey, they go with this, this, uh, this kind of Russian person who shows up in their town. They end up taking him all the way to kind of Ethiopia to find this, you know, mythical Jewish you know, whatever they, they call it, like a utopia, almost like this sure. Jerusalem. And they and they do encounter these almost like biblical giant, you know, Jewish characters who are awesome, I thought. But there, too, there's this real miscommunication happening between the Russian. You know, he's trying to paint a picture of them, but they don't want the picture. And they keep saying to the cat, like, what's going on here? And he's like, you don't want me to translate. Like, I'm not going to tell you, you know, it, it, it's nothing good. They don't like this, but right. he's kind of keeping to himself. And it's interesting that I think some of the most the most aggressive kind of violence and discrepancies do happen when there's no communication, you know, when there's no intermediary. So as much as this cat introduces a lot of complexity because he forges these connections that make things more complicated and ultimately suffers, you know, himself, this cat by kind of the influx of new information that comes with language and processing. There's also this violence that comes when people aren't necessarily communicating, you know, when you have like the, like that scene in the tent, you know, before that kind of fight, like, I I forget what the the specific point is, but they're like going back and forth about their faith and no one's listening to each other. You know, they're just kind of like shouting like, I'm right, you're right, whatever. And that's why they say, let's solve this with swords. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you try to use swords instead of words, like, you know, the Jews say is how we kind of solve fights, like both of them died. So as much as language, I think can create complication, it can also bridge gaps in a way that uh, you know, can be valuable, at least according to the movie, I think. Yeah, I mean, the Russian guy is like, he yells at the other guy, I love death. And the other guy yells back at him, well, I love death more than you. And let's settle this. Like, And then they take out their swords and then they fight. And yeah, it's not a good thing. I think the cat isn't uh, encouraged to speak in that situation because the sheik who, who, uh, who like is friends with the rabbi, he says, oh, don't say anything. Like he comes to the tent after getting... Right. After getting stung by a scorpion, the folks in the tent heal him and 
you know, they're like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't speak in that tent. They're going to think that you're some sort of devil thing. So I would just kind of keep it quiet. And to, I think this works to a very comical effect throughout the film. But like whenever the cat can't speak or chooses not to speak, he does a very like adorable. Meow, 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 meow. Instead of speaking <laughs> it's, it's like a French, French like meow. Meow, yeah. In like a very deep voice. I right, found right, it right. hilarious. Yeah. We didn't really talk a lot about the fact that the Russian guy didn't speak um, French. Right. And and the cat somehow couldn't speak French anymore, but could speak Russian. Yeah. Or could be understood by the Russian, which is, I, I don't really, like that one I was like, hmm, I don't know. I mean, like, that if he can't speak, so did the Russian guy speak cat or did the cat yeah, I, I think that has to do with because the the cat loses or the rabbi loses the ability to understand the cat. And we kind of see it through the cat's perspective of the cat loses the ability to speak English, but kind of later or sorry, not English, but French. But I think later on, they kind of explain that as the rabbi wasn't open to kind of owning him or, you know, being his kind of master, like connecting with this cat. And because of that, he lost it because that happens that coincides with the rabbi taking this french language test that the rabbi goes into kind of this depression afterwards thinks he's going to fail and it's only afterwards when he gets it and he's kind of more open minded all of a sudden you can hear the cat again and i think the cat or someone makes this comment to the effect of like oh you weren't you know ready to kind of be connected to me and now that you are you know we can hear each other again so there was something about kind of the russian being willing or eager to you know connect with this cat that like that that's how I saw the cat. It was symbolic of people being receptive to it okay. to a certain extent. It's, it's actually almost biblical. You know, there's a story with um when Joseph gets sold into slavery and his father, you know, Jacob or Yaakov, he goes into a depression and he loses his ability to um to see the world clearly. Mm-hmm. And he would he would have had like such mastery over things, he would have been able to know. You know, they call it in Hebrew Ruach HaKodesh, like this, he used, he would have been able to know that Joseph was alive and he would have been able to know that he was safe had he not gotten depressed because he had that power. But because he had, he lost the power, he couldn't see, and it kind of reminded me of that in the film when the rabbi got depressed and he lost the ability to have this like special power. Daniel, you were asking us before the podcast, we were telling you about some of the questions and stretch of the pod is one that we kind of introduced and you're asking what that is, that that would have been, uh, that will, that is a perfect one. That's exactly kind of connecting stretch. it to there. And I actually think that that's completely legitimate. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I appreciate that. I, uh, I just thought like the difference there is that nobody understood the cat. Like his daughter didn't understand the cat either. And she didn't go into a depression. So there is the difference there. It was like, I think the cat was punished for being blasphemous with God's name. And then he loses the ability to speak. But for some reason, not to Russians. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's interesting. The, uh, The Russian character introduces like this whole other aspect to the film, you know, in terms of, uh, he's an artist and and the way that he's depicting art throughout the film is uh you know is interesting given that it's like a it's an adaptation of a graphic novel um but uh oh just while you're right on that topic i just want to slip this in one of my favorite points uh was when they flash back to the story of how he had to leave russia Mm -hmm. and 
you know the art the the style changes of the art and mm -hmm. um yeah it i thought that was a very well done piece and the way they told that story was was very visually interesting and um powerful yeah i thought that was great yeah i, I think the you know the the art does change you know during the cat's dream sequence during the de depiction of this like utopian city at the end it's like vastly different um, and then also like during this sort of pogrom situation that he's depicting, like you're, like you're mentioning Daniel, uh, uh, you know, I think once the Russian is introduced, uh, you know, he comes in through a crate of, of like, uh, I think what happens is the Russian communists are taking Jewish books and sending them away. So the rabbi takes them in as sort of like a Shamos situation, you know, like where you just dispose of holy books and things like that. Uh, and inside the box is a Russian person who I think is sleeping or I don't know, maybe smuggled in somehow, whatever. But I did want to sort of talk about, you know, the introduction of, of this Russian person and also cousin Malka and all the different cultures and connections uh, that we sort of see uh, throughout the film. You know, the rabbi is an Algerian Jew. He has a cousin who walks around with a giant lion and he's tall and thin and muscular. And then we have uh, the rabbi's uh, sheikh friend, Muhammad Sfar and the donkey and all the, all the different people that we, we are introduced to. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's a really nice, you know, kaleidoscope or rainbow flag, if you will, of like all the different colors of, of people who are living in Africa at the time we have Ethiopian Jews, we have our Ethiopian folks we have uh well, i don't know at the end i guess they're ethiopian jews are like where jewish and black people live um you know there's a lot going on culture a lot of different cultures a lot of unique aspects about them that i wanted to kind of open up and see what y'all thought about one thing i observed with that and i think it's fascinating we see so many different cultures in this movie but it felt like it felt like the lines that you would kind of typically draw within cultures are not necessarily where the best connections come. Like you mentioned, the rabbi and his sheikh friend are kind of like probably the closest relationship we see in the movie. Mm -hmm. And when we encounter other people, you know, of the Islam faith that you would expect kind of be, you know, or just that you would traditionally associate more with the sheikh, like they're kind of from the same religion, like those kind of boundaries within are sometimes not only in that case, but elsewhere in the movie are the ones that are sometimes the most fraught. And it's the really, it's the ones that are across. Like we see, you know, this Russian Jew and he connects with this Ethiopian and she converts for him. And like, that's a connection. And then even bringing us to the end of the movie, when this Jewish couple and their Jewish cat kind of come to, you know, this Jewish, you know, center, this Jewish utopia, like we were saying for, they're rejected there too. So it might not be, it's across, you know, all lines. It might be that the religious lines are kind of the ones that, are there's a lot of divide across you know between them but then what i think this movie does really well is it showcases how across those lines there are some really strong and kind of you know developed relationships that that show up and obviously the central relationship of a cat and its owner i mean that crosses species but that also is like a relationship you wouldn't expect so it's interesting the way that this movie presents cultures it's not showing people very you know kind of within their own you know singular line kind of brushing up against each other but it's actually it's a real uh, you know, kind of meddling together of everything. Can I take that a step further, if that's okay? I feel like, you know, the, the main rabbi and his, like, his rabbi, the older gentleman, you know, they are seemingly of on the same team, quote unquote, um, but they 
are culturally just a bit different. You know, one is like kill your cat, throw it away. It's it's whatever. And then also with with the Russian Jewish guy and the fellow Russian who's not Jewish, who's a bit of a drunk and has, you know, his own issues, the violent one. They seemingly would get along because they are both Russian, but they they don't they don't not get along, but they're not of they're not cut from the same cloth. So I like what you're saying, Harry, that like often, you know, it's it's more about temperament and and, you know, fanaticism or or whatever you want to call it. But like personality, I think, draws the people between cultures much more than I think, you know, automatically assuming that all the Jews and all the Russians and all the people right. of color right. would get along together. So, yeah. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting was that neither of the two rabbis look like what you'd imagine a rabbi looks like. Um. And the rabbi's daughter was certainly not dressed the way you'd expect a rabbi's <laughs> daughter to dress. Right. Yeah. In, in fact, there was very little about the rabbi that seemed like a rabbi other than the fact that he learned the Talmud. Right. But he struck me more as just a learned Jew than as a rabbi. There wasn't, you don't see him in the role of a rabbi very much in the film, if at all. He just teaches the cat a little bit. Um, but that's about it. You don't really get to see him doing his rabbi thing. He gets very depressed about the fact that he thinks he's not going to be able to be a rabbi anymore until he finds out the results of his test. But then when he gets the results of this test, he, you don't see him return to being a rabbi. Mm -hmm. uh, his his heart is in exploring and, and uh, going on some last great adventure, which almost makes you wonder why he was so depressed in the first place. Uh, if he wasn't going to get to rabbi anymore, because, you know, I guess, I guess the answer to that would be that he didn't know he'd be going on that adventure and he thought that's all he had and he was going to lose it. But it seems to me that his heart was not in being a rabbi, um, mm. very much in the film. It was really just like he was worried about losing a job. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak to what it was like to be a rabbi in the 1920s in Algeria, but I know that like he did do the most Jewish stuff of anybody in the film. Like he put on tefillin, which is like a very symbolic scene where he's like praying at the beginning before his test. Uh, he's learning Talmud when others, you know, don't. He's like uh, <clears throat> he's praying outside with a sheikh when he's like on his you know, on the prayer rug and he's davening to Mecca and he's davening to Jerusalem. Yeah, I, I love that. Like the sort of coexistence vibe that was going on throughout was really nice uh, to see. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, and I think his exploration as a rabbi kind of fits with what we're, you know, observing here with kind of the way these connections go broad. I think if we expected him to be a rabbi the way that, you know, in like in maintaining his own community, right? Like he, when he kind of gets the approval of the rabbi, what you'd expect is he would kind of lean into his community and be, you know, the leader there and take care of them kind of within that. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that changes between him being depressed about not becoming a rabbi and then going on this adventure is he discovers this other Jew, this Russian Jew, who's in need, who needs his help. And I think his community is like, let's get rid of him. Communism, we can't have that here. This is bad. Let's protect ourselves. And I think it's fitting with the character of this rabbi that he's like, this is another Jew that needs help. And even though he's not within my community, you know, my direct community, mm -hmm. he's still, you know, he's from Russia. We're totally different. We don't even speak the same language. You know, he needs help. He needs to go on this adventure. So he found him, the guy who speaks Russian in their community to kind of translate and they get his car. And he's like, 
we are going to get this guy to his destination. So I think it it's not the typical kind of insular rabbi, commu- you know, community first role that we expect. And that I, I assume he'll transition back to now that he's back from his trip by the end of the movie. Like, I think, I don't think he's abandoning his post. I think he's just, he's expanding his scope in a way that, that like I said, fits the themes and the character of the movie. There was, a, I also had other thoughts on terms of like, he... Like I said, like he didn't seem to be bothered by his daughter dressing a certain way that you would expect a rabbi to to, mm-hmm. to not be yeah. on board with. He didn't put up much of a fight about doing like a Mickey Mouse conversion for the uh the waitress. Yeah, yeah. And and then maybe most shockingly, he eats a crocodile, which is not yeah. kosher. Don't and he I makes up a about that. on the spot, a blessing on the spot. Thank you, God, for like Providing this crocodile, that's an excellent meal. Béni sois-tu, éternel, notre Dieu, qui autorise exceptionnellement la viande de crocodile. Et donne-nous des forces qu'on n'en peut plus. Amen. I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of other... It's it's good that you brought this up, because I was going to say, like, there's a, another a number of other con- concessions he makes in his own, you know, faith. Uh, and I think maybe when he's on the road, he, you know, he eats... I don't know what the situation with Kashrut is at the time, but like he's eating couscous and whatever that all the other folks are eating in the tent. And then he also is like pressured into like conceding that like Islam is the superior religion by the prince. And so like he's he's made to like face all these tests and rather than like put up a fight and stick to his guns, so to speak, he. He, he concedes seems to and, f- and fail every like, test. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Um, Except the one in French. Right. He does miraculously pass that one. Um, uh, but it, it's one other thing just about the cultures before we move on. Like I, I did appreciate like you talked about the, the Tintin cameo and, you know, talking about like colonialism as it's depicted in the film, I think there's a comment that somebody makes in the bar about the uh, the black uh, bartender you know the russian guy is is they fall in love and uh, this colonial guy says oh the, here's how you have to draw black women they have a certain you know face or whatever and and we quickly we quickly like you know decide there the russian quickly decides that that's not an appropriate way to talk to people and so he knocks him out and also the way that like tintin is talking about people um i heard from from the is this interview that joan Sfar uh, wanted to to bring up tintin because he's also a fan but also like depict how like Belgians and how Hergé as an artist would depict Jewish people, how he would depict black people in not such a flattering way. And to kind of like at least point that out and then have the characters react to those kinds of things, um, showing that they wouldn't stand for it either. Yeah. Kind of interesting. One of the girls at the beginning of the film who was Jewish had a giant nose. She did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A very pointy nose. Yeah. And her name was like Knedelach or Knedelet or something like that. It was kind of kind of an interesting choice, but yeah. It was a depiction that you'd almost think was anti-Semitic if not for the context in which you're watching it. Like the way that the, some of the characters are drawn and, and, and depicted is, uh, you know, fa- probably faithful to the comic, but yeah, it's quite exaggerated some t- uh, somewhat. But I did, I did appreciate seeing Tintin in there because I don't know if you can see. In the other room, I have a Voyage to the Moon poster hanging up on my wall, so I'm a big fan as well. Speaking of depiction, you know, this movie is not only its own kind of adapted from a comic book and, you know, represented in this uh, animation style, but 
the movie itself concerns itself with drawing a lot. Mm-hmm. There's obviously the Russian character who is an artist and is frequently seen kind of capturing things. And there's even a conversation he has with the cat at one point about, you know, he's capturing a desert and, you know, the, the cat asks him why. And he says, I just love nature. And the cat says, nature is more beautiful. He's like, yes, I know, but I just want to kind of capture it. And like the movie, you know, his painting style is kind of this very abstract capturing. But the movie also deals with, you know, um, depicting people because there are two instances where we see kind of this religious brushing up against people being depicted. There's a, there's a scene where um, he kind of starts painting the head of the, uh, you know, the Muslim community kind of in the, the tented community. And, you know, someone else in the community is like, you can't depict him like people like that's against religion. And, you know, the guy has to explain, he says, no, uh, you know, an idol is against religion because it casts a shadow and people can worship it, but, you know, or a statue rather, but, you know, this should be fine. And then there's even towards the end, we kind of have that, that scene mirrored because again, this guy starts painting the Jewish tribe, you know, that this, you know, Jewish tribe. And again, they, they respond very negatively in a way that some other people don't like there are other people that are painted throughout the movie, you know, a lot of depictions. So, I, I'm interested in like the way that this movie is engaging with kind of the value of painting people, which is a movie with, as a movie, as a comic book, it literally does. But also the way that there's a lot of tension, you know, religiously, like what almost what is the movie saying about what is lost and what is gained by depicting, you know, what are the some of the risks and what are, you know, in some ways, some of the rewards of trying to capture something in such an abstract and, you know, recreating style does anyone have any thoughts about you know where i'm going with that i like the you know how the cat uh when upon seeing the the russian guy paint in the desert at night he's like it's all blue i don't understand like what are you drawing and he's like no it's all about like the subtleties and the different shades of blue and it provides and you know maybe we could map that on to like the the depiction of cultures and and things like that that like yes we're all jewish or yes we're all muslim or yes we're all black but like there are differences in the way that we approach these things and i'm sure that's what the cat had in mind so that's why i'm you know <laughs> he's a wise cat he's a wise cat yeah so that's sort of my read on it but uh yeah the way that like art can bring people together and like disarm you know you can fight people with swords and fight people with words but you can also like grow you know build bridges with art and like take the prince who's like seemingly going to kill them all. And he's like, Oh, you know, I like this picture. Let's, let's eat grapes together. I mean, it's speaking about like language. It's art is a universal language. You don't need to understand what everyone else is saying when we can all kind of look at the same depiction. Totally. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, (laughs) I thought, uh, I thought it was, it's funny that we all kind of resonated with that scene with the blues in the desert. Um, I also, that kind of struck me as well. Um, the cat. Do you think the cat liked Judaism in the end or not? Hmm. I mean, question. up until that last scene, he is eager to kind of get his bar mitzvah. Like he runs on it. Obviously, that culminates in the entire community chasing him out, trying to kill him. But right. at least until that point, you know, nothing from the journey until then had dissuaded him from getting his bar mitzvah. And then he's very down on humanity after that yeah it's interesting because he doesn't outright reject it he has his questions which is good Mm -hmm. um and he is he is a bit blasphemous and he he among us isn't huh i mean he gets he gets punished for it you know so like right he he kind of learns his lesson and um 
And, and in that way, you kind of see his relationship with God because, you know, he is one of God's creatures and God reacts to him as he would any creature. Like he's like, you're not supposed to do this. And now you're going to, yeah. I'm going to have to, you know, reroute you a little bit. And yeah. then ultimately he does some repentance, I suppose. And then he gets his speech back. Right. Um, then he jumps on the Torah, which is not a good move uh, in the middle of that bar mitzvah. Yeah. I, I, I wish it's such a funny scene when everybody chases him out. Uh, at the same time, I wanted to see more in that. Didn't you like want to spend more time in that Ethiopian oh, mystical? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like, I'm like, oh, we got here. Let's 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 see it. Let's go around the corners and and explore. I, and it's just like ah, I thought it was so guys kicked out. Yeah, I, I loved seeing that community. I, and I was trying to understand how the movie was casting them, because in one sense, it seemed, you know, very archaic and biblical. And, you know, obviously, they don't have patience for these people who traveled all this way. They're very tough. Right. On the other end, it was almost like seeing a city of of, of golems. Like it was these like very strong, you know, big physical. I mean, they're all kind of blue. These almost like, you know, superhuman like, Jews, maybe Amorim, you know. Sure. Maybe like it was just there was something very almost powerful and exciting about this community flourishing and especially in the wake of kind of the pogroms that we're learning about for the that this Russian character is escaping. Mm -hmm. Like not only are there no other people to have, you know, pushed away. I mean, this is like a mythical community in the middle of the desert, it seems. So not only is there no one to push them away, but even if someone tried, this community is prosperous enough and strong enough that it could very clearly defend itself. It has an army. I mean, you know, bringing this back to the conversations we're having about, you know, Israel at the top and just kind of the current events, and we don't have to dwell in this. But I do think that, you know, coming from the backdrop of pogroms, where you see this defenseless community running away, looking to the nearest church to kind of defend themselves, mm -hmm. there's something really powerful when you know, the Jewish people kind of have a means for self-defense. And I just seeing that kind of rendered in this very abstract art style, you know, of these characters at the end, I thought was pretty cool. I agree. I wanted to spend a lot more time with them. Now, that's a really powerful point you just made. Um, actually got me a little choked up when you said it. It's like it's because I've been so dwelling on the sadness of it, which is very sad. But that is an important thing to take a step back and look and say, Hey, for one of the first times in Jewish history, since we were yeah. exiled from Jerusalem, we can fight back. And we never had that. Right. right. And, and we sort of take it for granted. And now here we have this time where like we see it and the world is pushing back against us, fighting back. And we're kind of like, look, we know what happens when we don't, we've yeah. all, seen the films read the books heard the stories so we're we're jews and if we don't defend ourselves it ends very badly so um thank god we finally now again can defend ourselves it's just so tragic that we have to yeah i mean i think it's like one of the you know for for a lot of young people who are new to to the concept of like war in in terms of like modern history i feel like this is one of the more obviously there are atrocities all over the world and have been for a long time but i think you know since the 2000 since 9 11 there have been a number of of conflicts and 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 wars in russia and ukraine but like i think this is capturing a lot of attention and and 
and backlash and, and media attention just because it's such a hotly contested area and people have very preconceived notions of what is and isn't right. And, you know, there's no, we've covered this before whenever we do like war films, but like nobody wins in war, you know, there's civilian casualties on either side. It's, it's awful. Um, but yeah, I think it's just having to reckon with all of this is is really challenging for for everyone. Um, and, you know, for the people in the United States who don't feel safe as Jews, it's it's a lot. It's a lot to to take in for sure. But back to the scene for a second. I, I did want to comment on the on the style of of the of the folks in the utopian city in that, like, uh, it, do you know, the comic grew from Sergio Aragones. He like used to do Mad Magazine. It reminded me a lot of that style. I think the uh, the way that uh, th these folks were depicted, it, it did kind of remind me of like there's a lot of communities within Africa that are in different countries that are like the Beta Israel among the Ethiopians and other communities that have like a, very strong Jewish traditions, but they are kind of like separate from, uh, you know, Israel, but they are practicing Jews within. And I think uh, it's cool to sort of see that aspect of Judaism depicted um, in this sort of city. You don't see too much about African Jewry. You really don't. The sentiment that we're saying is definitely echoed in the movie itself, where there's a great line by the rabbi who doesn't believe that there even could be, you know, black Jews. He's like, black Jews, like, you know, they they had slavery. We had the pogroms like that's too much suffering for one people. You couldn't possibly, you know, bear both. And it's interesting how and it's just in the movie, that description would make it seem like you'd have this really defeated people. And somehow that's kind of the strongest of, of any of the Jews we see in the movie. And when they arrive, the the Jews, the Ethiopian Jews go, I've never seen a pink Jew. Yeah, yeah. Right. Which is awesome. It's um, so we've lost something with the world becoming smaller and social media and there was there was a time when you could explore the world and find these hidden Jewish communities, and that's what my dad did for a living. for For many years, he was a photojournalist that covered the Jewish communities around the world, and he went to Ethiopia and photographed the Jewish community there, and India, and photographed there in Azerbaijan and and Iran, and like a lot of these communities don't exist anymore. Um, and my dad. You know, he was he grew up completely unaffiliated as a Jew. Um, very, very, very secular. My grandparents were like real New York uh intellectual artists who had no religion in the home. And my dad was like went to the New York Public Library one day when he was a kid and got a book on Judaism and was like, yeah, I'm Jewish, I should know something about it. And his passion was photography and he wound up deciding he wanted to devote himself to documenting Jewish communities around the world. And so, you know, as a young single guy, and even as a young married guy, when I was a kid, he'd be going off to all these like remote places where people didn't know at the time there were Jews. And he'd be seeing these untapped Jewish communities that were just like, and there was no internet. There was no, they didn't, you know, he told me, my dad told me that he went to, when he was in Azerbaijan, he went to services to photograph the, and there was a kid reading from the Torah. And he, that's when he decided that he wanted to become more observant uh, because 
he had this like epiphany moment where he's like, I'm a Jew from New York, which is supposedly like a really Jewish place. And I don't know how to read from the Torah. And here I am in this tiny little village in Azerbaijan. And this kid is reading from the Torah. Like, I want to, I want to go in deeper, you know? So incredible. Um, it was like, it's, you can't do that anymore because it doesn't exist really that ability to do that. Uh, most of those communities are in Israel now, mm-hmm. or they've been disbanded, or in, in the case of Iran, they're in Los Angeles. But, <laughs> you know, uh, my dad got to see that world, like the last remnants of that world that we explore in the film. I, w- I wish he'd wrote a, a journal of his, uh, well, he did two journalism with it, but I wish I wish there was a book of all his journeys. Maybe that could be your next project. That sounds incredible. All the photos and, and some stories about it and stuff. Yeah, sadly, most of his photos were destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. No way. Yeah, oh, rough. a lot of history. Right. Very right. sadly destroyed. But so, many of them were published over the years in different publications. So and those what's his probably name? exist well, somewhere. We can, uh, Richard you know, Lobel. Richard Lobel, nice. Uh, I did find the name of the documentary. It's called Doing Jewish, A Story from Ghana by Gabrielle Zilka. Um, and she goes to Accra, Ghana, and documents uh, an entire Jewish community of Sefwi Jews. So I thought after seeing that documentary, it kind of reminded me of these Jews in Ethiopia who are gigantic and are kind of melding the cultures and, and doing a version of, of Judaism, which the cat then interrupts and, you know, <laughs> destroys their this kid's bar mitzvah who for years to come will like talk about. There was once a talking cat at my bar mitzvah. Um, but what a bummer. So I don't remember where he was, but he was in like some like Bukharian community somewhere remote. And he photographed this kid lighting a menorah and it made it into a big publication. Maybe it was time magazine or something. I don't remember, but it was in a big publication. And, uh, cause it was like a cool iconic shot of like this little kid. Right. 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 Um, Many, many, many years later, like 30, 40 years later, my dad gets a call from somebody and it's that kid. Whoa. And you know, this reminded me when you said like that kid will always remember this this cat, this bizarre thing of a cat coming sure. into his bar mitzvah. He had never like seen a camera. So when my dad Ooh. showed up with the camera, it was like something they talked about in their village, apparently for many years afterwards. Like, remember when that guy came with a camera? Mm-hmm. and took a picture and he looked up and found that picture of himself lighting that menorah that my dad took That's and he called my dad he found him like on online his number and he's like are you the same richard lobel that photographed me when i was a kid and i forget what little village and the, the menorah and my dad's like wow yeah i remember that he's like yeah it was like like the highlight of my childhood and my my dad's like wow he's like uh, where are you now he's like Oh, I manage a Walmart in uh, in Dallas or something. <laughs> wow. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. He's like, yeah, I had a crazy like story, and I came to America, and I worked my way up through Walmart. And now I'm a manager of a whole store. My dad's like, that's incredible. Like, so you just like it just reminded me that that cat, like how it would have impacted, like that will be a legend in that village forever. Remember yeah, that yeah. that talking cat that came in? Like, it's the camera, you know. Right. It's 
I think that's it's it puts a really nice bow on this conversation we've had about, you know, these connections across cultures and space, the way that cameras, you know, visual depictions can kind of unite people and share, you know, capture sentiments. And uh, if, if you're good with it, Daniels, I think that's a great place to uh, take us into a break, get into the other categories and, uh, you know, get into some more interesting discussions. Sounds great. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Daniel Lobel talking about The Rabbi's Cat. I'm going to toss it over to Harry, who will give us a few categories, and then we'll rate the film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. Harry, take it away. For sure. So uh, as always, we're going to go through three questions now. One is, what was the most Jewish scene of the film? The, uh, the next is, what is your Jewish stretch of the pod, which we'll get into as we introduce that question. And then finally, is this movie good or bad for the Jews? But let's start at the top. Pretty simple. What to you two was the most Jewish scene in this movie? I mean, I think it's obvious, the obvious one. Like, there's probably a, a better one, but the, the one that jumps out obvious to me is when the cat is discussing, like, you know, with the rabbi, a, a basic tenets of Judaism and when the world was created, that type of thing. You took the words yeah. right out of my mouth. I was going <laughs> to pick that one too. <laughs> I mean, like, it was so, like, Talmudic, you know, right. it was a hundred percent. Yeah. It was like very Havruta based, like, you know, like joint learning with a partner and like this sort of back and forth discourse of like, well, actually maybe the people were older and Noah and the aging and then like for every reason that the rabbi had, the cat had a nice retort and then they were just going back and forth. So I'm a hundred percent. I feel like that is a very Jewish scene. Harry, how about yourself? I'll, I'll mix it up. I'll give a different one. And this okay. one was the most Jewish because I was expecting it to go differently. And then when they took kind of the more Jewish approach to me, I was like, this this movie, you know, knows itself well. And that's specifically the one where um, the Russian and the Ethiopian woman, they want to get married and she has to convert. Mm -hmm. And like they're asked, they're begging for kind of this conversion. And I think I was coming with, you know, this Jewish knowledge about, you know, how conversion works in Judaism and how it's actually, you know, we, we encourage against it and you're not. And they're doing it very clearly for love because they want to get married. It comes right after sure. they ask the rabbi to marry them. And he says, I can't marry you to someone, you know, I can't do a non-Jewish wedding kind of thing. And I was just thinking like, you know, we don't really do that in Judaism. You're not, you're, you know, you're not supposed to convert, you know, just for love. You really have to like know the Torah. And mm -hmm. then what I loved is that the rabbi, you know, says that explicitly. Like I thought this movie was just going to be cheeky and say, okay, fine, you know, love wins, whatever. But the rabbi pushes back and says, you know, I, I can't possibly convert you without, you know, you knowing the 613 mitzvot. And then here's the cool part that he then says, like uh, she can't learn it. She's like, I want to be converted now. So he says, well, and this is, you know, a famous idea that I was familiar with. And this was kind of my most Jewish scene. Right. He says there is this, you know, axiom from Rabbi Akiva where he says that, you know, Kola Torah Kula, the entire Torah can be summed up with this one famous, you know, Pasuk that's love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he conveys that to her. And, you know, as, as someone who has clearly demonstrated that the way that they've kind of joined this community, she says, okay, and then they kind of go through it, the conversion and just the referencing that, you know, somewhat deep cut, I would say to those less familiar with, sure, you know, Judaism sure, sure. and even kind of holding the movie accountable. I still think that, you know, if you spoke to some modern Orthodox, you know, rabbis, they might not consider that the most, you know, legitimate conversion. They might be a little bit more difficult, but for mm -hmm. the sake of this movie, the fact that it even went there, yeah. I was like, that's really cool. That That's nice. a really cool Jewish deep cut. So I like that scene. So I'm going to pick a different answer because Daniel, you, you picked a great one that I had also like, 
loaded up, but I feel like um, another scene was when Malka, the cousin, comes, you know, uh, Lion Malka. So Malka, as we mentioned, he has like a giant uh, lion. And, you know, previously the rabbi had gone to the cafe and had been kicked out for being a Jew. No Jews or Arabs allowed is what the sign said. And then he comes back. He's waiting at the corner, kind of like eyeing the waiter. And then Malka with his lion comes and his giant rifle and he like watches him and clocks him as he sits down. So I thought that was kind of like a nice F you to anti-Semitism and being like, all right, I'm going to roll up with my cousin and, and sort of, you know, stick it to you. So I thought that was like a nice sort of way to like, you know, stick up for himself. I would have been worried that they would poison him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's certainly a concern. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that is a good that is a good scene. Uh, should we move on to uh, to stretch of the pod? So, Daniel, you had a good one earlier. Uh, if you want to use that one, we'll allow it 100 percent. But if there's you know, if there's something else that, you know, Jean Svar and, and the, the folks involved in the film, you know, had not intended initially, but using our Jews on film glasses, we kind of or context, you know, uh, like we're able to read into the film in a, in a different way. Um, I'd love to hear those. I'm sticking Harry, with the one I, I gave you. You're going to stick with the one. And remind us again what, what that stretch was. It was about Jacob and Joseph and how right. he couldn't, we came depressed. He couldn't, he didn't know where, where his son was anymore, if he was alive or not. And he would have known otherwise. Got it. Harry, how about yourself? Stretch of the pod? Yeah, I, I had a couple. I'm trying to think. You know, I think there's like an allusion with the talking animal to the talking animal story that is in the Torah. So that would be Bilaam's donkey. And also like there in is some a talking ways, donkey in the movie. There is a talk. That's true, by the way. So in some ways that can be that same donkey. I mean, you'd have to kind of go through with the stretches. Well, maybe that was you know what? That'll be my stretch that right. the the filmmaker, the comic book writers, whoever it is, was kind of nodding to the illusion. They're saying, you want to know where this cat comes from? I'll give you the only other talking animal in the home. Or like, are, are there any more? I, oh, the lion does say a couple things, but one of the most He's prominent the other talking kid. animals. Yeah. 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 Will be kind of this donkey as a way of like nodding to the audience. Like, yes, I, I am taking inspiration or I am doing a nod to the Billum's donkey thing and how much more you want to read into that. I'm sure there's some connections in that story, but by featuring the donkey like that to me is, uh, is kind of my knowing stretch in the pod. So I can speak for myself that I know that Billum donkey story a hundred percent by heart, like the top of my head, but why don't you just like refresh our memory for those who do not know, what is the story? Sure. In the, the, the broad strokes of it are that there's this character of Billum that's being sent by this guy, Bullock. He's a king of one of the enemies of the Jews. And he sends this guy, Billum to go out and, you know, curse the Jews and God kind of miraculously intervenes in two ways. One of the ways is that Billum kind of every word he speaks, though he intends it to be a curse, ultimately comes out as a blessing. I'm trying to think if there's more allusions to that story in the movie, because that feels kind of, of of a piece with it. But they come out as a blessing. And then the second thing is that his donkey miraculously starts talking. And not only is it talking, but it starts intervening and trying to draw him off his course and turns around and is refusing to go through with it. So there's this kind of positive influence that's showing this otherwise, you know, corrupted person that's uh, you know, pushing him towards sanctifying the Jews, you could say. So nice. again, I'm I'm trying I'm using, yeah, I'm using descriptions that hopefully evoke some similarities with this movie, but I'll let our listeners kind of do the work of drawing out all those connections. Sure. And that's probably where Shrek got the idea for the talking donkey as well, right? I'm sure. Also, yeah. When we when we do our Shrek episode, very Jewish movie, I'm okay. sure we can do a Billum read then too. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, I'm glad they had it in mind. 
Um, for me, the Come stretch. On, donkey, donkey. Wait, are you busting out a donkey impression? Go for it. I want to give space well, for that. Well, it's a Shrek impression. Oh. Donkey, what are you doing, donkey? Um, I, my stretch, I think, would would be kind of something I alluded to before, but like, uh, you know, the the giants that we see. I feel like uh, those are the Amaraim, like, you know, biblically, they are referred to as like uh, giant people who were, um, I think, you know, Og was the king of, of the giants, Og Melchabashan, like he's he's referred to as like a giant person. And then there's also some giants when the Jews go, uh, the spies go in and, and check out uh, Israel initially, they're carrying like giant grapes. And so I'm my stretch of the pot is that the people that we see in this sort of utopian city are the same. A group of giants so Which not one? as stretchy as your donkey read harry it, it also has some interesting implications because that would imply that they are not the jewish people who entered the land of israel but they're the kind of enemies of the jews which is interesting when the movie cast them as jewish like you could also say that they're kind of intermingled descendants and maybe they have some uh i don't, I don't know but there Who's are some say? interesting yeah there, there's some it's real intense religious implications there I want to get a sense of uh, whether y'all thought this film was good for the Jews or not. By that, I mean, like, you know, if uh, I think our maybe our new, you know, if, if there's someone who had no exposure to Jewish people whatsoever and we sat them down and said, this is a movie about Jewish people, you know, these people are Jewish in the film. What do you what's your take on Jews after watching this movie? How do you think they would react? Do you think they would say it was good for the Jews or not so good? That's a really interesting question. Um, I'll I'll start us off. I I sure. I thought this was awesome. I I think there are some, you know, just like religious extremes that are explored in this movie, but I I just thought this was a great like proud Jewish movie. And like a, like I said earlier, not in a way that it felt like it was advocating for itself so much that it was just this was just a great interesting character that was like a leader in his community. This really awesome guy, the you know the rabbi in particular, who was engaging in kind of challenging religious discourse and interpersonal discourse and he was just jewish and that was just him and like this was a really refreshing depiction and an exciting depiction for me to watch as you know a jew myself that i i was smiling the whole time i was like this was a uh great jewish movie so I, I would say definitely good for the jews i'd be excited to show this to people yeah i would agree with you that i enjoyed the movie the entire time myself the thing that's making it hard for me to answer is the premise that somebody has no exposure to Judaism and then they see this and and this is their impression of Judaism. That's a tough one because I'm not sure how to answer it because it's so subjective. Also, it's so dependent on on who's watching this. Is it a religious person of another faith uh, exploring, uh, to, trying to see if this, is this what Judaism is about? In that case, I would say it's bad for the Jews because... It's not a great representation of our tradition religiously. Mm -hmm. um, if it's somebody who wants to see if Jews are friendly and fun and they're like, that's where they're coming from, then I'd say it's good for the Jews because it's a very friendly and fun uh, and, and interesting where, you know, we certainly are, we get deep, we get introspective, you know, we, we talk about lofty ideas um, in that way, I'd say good for the Jews, but it really, really hard for me to blanket it and say anybody who hasn't had exposure to Judaism, this would be a good first exposure because I think for some people it would be a very destructive one. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet again, like as somebody who is Jewish and can appreciate a lot of these themes and knows a lot about what's being discussed, I really enjoyed it, you know? Yeah. 
But again, like even that crocodile scene where if somebody had no exposure, I guess they would think crocodiles are kosher. Right. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, it's a good point. I'll take I'll take that non-answer as like an answer. I feel like that's okay. We don't need to push you <laughs> one way or the other. I feel like okay is is like mid, you know. You could kind of go in the middle if that that works. It's an acceptable. Um again, like we were talking about at the beginning, it's all about nuance. It's not either or. Um I would say for myself as a, you know, my dad is Sephardic, my mom's Ashkenaz, and like someone who does a film podcast, I feel like that Ashken normativity is 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 how Judaism is often depicted on film. You know, people are like Jewish movies. Oh, you mean like Woody Allen movies or like Rob Reiner and when Harry met Sa whatever. All all sorts of, you know, movies that uh, we've covered a lot and we'll probably cover in the future, but like seeing a very proud Sephardic Jewish film uh, you know, certainly gains a lot of uh, points for me. I certainly enjoyed that a lot of the struggles that you're talking about with with Judaism, at least, you know, it's a cartoon. And so there you can't, you know, lend it the same gravity you would like a dramatic piece. But the fact that they don't just like roll over and do all these concessions without being like in irregular circumstances, like being in the desert by themselves and being without food or being like at knife point admitting that, you know, whatever religion is more superior. So I would probably say like, you know, uh, I thought it was pretty good depiction of Jews uh, or good for the Jews rather, but I see your points about, you know, think people thinking now that crocodiles kosher, which for the record is not, <laughs> um, yeah. but. Yeah. Or, or like someone thinking like it's, it's religiously acceptable for a rabbi's daughter to dress with a belly shirt, you know, like, sure. If you were looking at this as, say, like a religious Muslim, and this was your impression of Judaism, mm -hmm. you might be like, they're not very serious about their religion or something, because right. the rabbi's right. daughter is dressed like that. So, like, I don't, I don't know. It really would depend who the audience watching it and sure. getting their impression of Judaism for the first time is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the fashion sense was like back then, but I have a feeling maybe they were just trying to fit in, as a lot of Jews do today, fitting in, you know, like, you know, we're wearing baseball caps, and that's what, or, you know, everyone, different different concessions that people make. Um, I wanted to get a little bit uh, numerical here and kind of hear, on a scale of one to five, Jewish Stars of David, how did everyone want to rate this film? I'll, I'll start off, I'll set a baseline. Great. You know, normally I... Uh... I often like make sort of point out like this isn't your ranking of the quality of the film. This is specifically, you know, it's Jewishness. And, you know, I, I make a big deal of that. And it's that still is true. But for me, the the, the scores are going to be similar because I really love this movie. Mm -hmm. And I really thought it was very Jewish. Like, like you said, Daniel, kind of it depicted this, you know, a couple different versions of a Judaism that's not as, you know, Ashkenormative, as you said, you know, as kind of we're uh, used to seeing. And it showed kind of the way this life looked in Algiers and the way it looked in, or a version of maybe a more hypothetical version of how it could look, you know, in this kind of Ethiopian utopia. But right. this is a movie that like really explored its Jewishness also made space to have like direct kind of textual and, you know, uh, technical discussions about, like we said, about like the creation of the world. And, and it was just, I, I was, you know, struck by kind of how Jewish it felt throughout and all of its, you know, movements there. So I'm, I'm going to go like very high, maybe higher than, than the two of you, but I guess we'll see. And I'm going to go four and a half out of five stars. Like I found this to be a very Jewish, I mean, rabbi is in the name, you know, that's, that's clearly there. Right. And, I, and I just loved seeing it. I loved seeing this depiction. So I'm going to start us out pretty high. Four and a half uh, who stars. else has a yeah who else has a score that they want to pitch in 
Last. Okay, closing it out. I think I might also go kind of high. I mean, the uh, the nuanced sort of, uh, you know, the things that we, you know, don't normally see in, in a lot of films, the fact that there's like Talmud study, there's like foundational uh, deep cuts that they put in into the dialogue kind of like seamlessly the rabbi kiva stuff and adam and eve what are you like cain all these all these references to to different things calling people shaitans like you know i i think it was just sort of effortlessly like woven into their existence it wasn't like hey lox and bagels huh jewish like it was mm -hmm. just like part of everything jewish was just part of their life and uh you know Bonus points for it being like, you know, Sephardic depictions. So I might go 4.75, Harry, just to kind of wow. get higher than, you know. Yeah, I'll take it. I, I'm, you know. I thought you were going to be the heel. No, I usually am now. the heel, but like, I feel like, yeah. you know, only, only like points deducted just for these compromises that the rabbi does make. But like, again, these are situational things where it's like, you know. You hear yeah, like I, I would imagine you didn't like, have access to you know yeah. more kosher food, and you're supposed to protect yourself. They were in the desert, I'll, right? Uh, right. There wasn't like kosher catering them. back then, you know. No. If only they had Daniel the cook. You know, I heard you on your podcast uh, a while back. You were, you know, you worked as a mashgiach before, and you were able to cook nice things. If only they had that in the desert. If you had, if you were around, but which podcast was that? Oh, that was rip. the risk one. Yeah. You told that story, but um, what what about yourself? Where did you f feel like this film came? Uh, you know, numbers wise, one to five Jewish stars. Boy, I thought I was going to be the high rating with four. Okay, uh, out of five, <laughs> that's fine. Um, you guys both beat me on it. Um, it's but not a competition. Uh, yeah, I thought it was very, very proudly Jewish. Um, I very much enjoyed the film, so it gets a lot of points for enjoyment. But I'm a, I'm a tough, uh, I'm a tough, you know, five out of five to me would be like the ultimate film. And what would that I be? I can't say it's the, I don't know, but I, I can't uh, say it's the ultimate Jewish film. Yeah. We, we've only given that score out maybe twice, two or three times, I think. I'd have to go back and check. But yeah, five, five is, is high. Can't go that far. Okay. Because I don't feel like it's the ultimate Jewish film or right. it's the best film I've ever seen. Right. But it was a very enjoyable film, and it was a very Jewish film. Mm -hmm. So I think four stars is fair. That seems good. Bleeding into the four point somethings. I don't know if I'm a percentage star guy. I okay. think I'm like a full star or no star. Fair, um, fair. But uh, yeah, I go four. That sounds um, good. As a side point, it's a perfect lead in for me to talk about something we were going to plug anyway at the end. I was going to tee you up, but go for it. Yeah. I, I was going to wait for the tee up, but now I kind of have to jump into late. this. You're already on the ra on ramp. Go for it. I'm on, I'm, a, you know, I do comic books and you could talk about it if you want, but I just was going to zoom in on this one thing. I'm at the Juicy Awards in New York and I'm on a panel and the panel is called Ashkenormativity in Comic Book. Oh, perfect. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> because I'm also a mix, but I was raised Sephardic, uh -huh. um, I, um, <laughs> I'm on this panel to talk about uh, diversity and Ashkenormativity in comic books, mm -hmm. and I couldn't resist um, because you were both talking about that, and how often does that term come up ever? 
um <laughs> not in my world much but i try to bring it on this podcast a couple times yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a couple times yeah so are you as well you're you're half ashkenaz and half sephardic yeah i'm actually more than half okay. ashkenaz but we were raised sephardic because as i mentioned my dad was not raised with any um sure. traditions or anything and my mom side is the side that carry down the traditions from uh and and a lot of them are come from my great-grandfather who was from turkey and and that's only like kind of very little of why we're raised sephardic because mm -hmm. we don't have even that much of that on my mom's side because she was raised in scotland but ah, okay but <laughs> because um my dad traveled all around the world he gravitated towards sephardic judaism and he picked a Moroccan Jewish synagogue to raise us in. And that's Best kind. where I, yeah, that's where I learned Judaism. And uh, that's, that's a big part of my foundational Jewish identity is the Moroccan prayers and traditions and everything. And I'm not even Moroccan Jewish, but I, uh, I am at least enough Sephardic and I was raised Sephardic to say I'm Sephardic. So. Great. Speaking of that, uh, you have a new film that's playing now at festivals called Reconquistador, where you kind of, well, why don't you tell everyone what it's about? And, and kind it's of about how being supportive. Like okay. <laughs> no, it's it's about tracing my uh, ancestry to Spain and doing stand-up in Madrid and Barcelona and and going around and learning about my uh, the Spanish Jewish roots that I have and exploring that. It's funny because... Um, it's funny because it's a funny film, but that's not what I was going to say. It's funny in the context of what we were talking about, uh, Sephardic things. Like there's a scene in the movie in Reconquistador where I go into a, a place called the Hamon Experience. Hamon is ham. And I want, and I, you know, to be funny, I'm asking for Jewish dishes. And <laughs> what I realized is if I ask for Sephardic Jewish dishes, it's not going to play in the film. It's not going to be funny. If I ask for a right. kugel or a rugelach uh, or a pastrami sandwich and, or a chicken, a uh, canadal soup, you know, that's funny because that's what yeah. we know as co kosher food. If I, yeah. yeah, if I get into like more obscure Sephardic dishes, the general audience isn't mm -hmm. going to laugh. And I made that decision in the moment when we were filming. Not that anyone's ever going to analyze this that deeply, but I'll just tell you, you know, yeah, I, well, no. I worked at, um, I was an intern at the Colbert Report and I worked for a while in the props department there. And they would say just to make to sell the joke, you have to get the most thing of that thing. So like if Steven's making a joke about an apple, get the most apple looking apple. You know, don't get anything right. that's vaguely an apple or just get a red apple because that'll sell the joke. So like yeah. sometimes you have to like jump into Ashkenormativity to sell a Jewish joke, even in a Sephardic, sure. proudly Sephardic film. And so where can people check out that film if they're interested? Uh, they could find out more about it at reconquistadormovie.com. But, you know, you could find out where it's coming, what festivals it's going to be at. It will eventually be streaming somewhere. But uh, I'll, awesome. I'll give you guys a we'll shout when that it. happens. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely put a link to that in uh, Fair Enough Comics uh, as well. We'll put the link to those in the show notes. You also have a, a series of comics called Fair Enough Comics. Do you want to tell folks what that's about? Yeah, so um, that's another reason why I love this film, because I'm a big fan of comics, graphic novels, and uh, I was a big fan of Harvey P. Carr. I got to know him mm -hmm. and be friendly with him for a little while towards the end of his life. 
And uh, he really inspired me. And I wanted to do kind of what he was doing and turn my life into comic books. And so that's what fair enough is. I, I like the term fair enough. My grandfather used to say it a lot and it always made me laugh. Yeah. And uh, it's, it seems it seems like a fair enough title. So I uh, I I and I that's how I often see like truly I see everything in life that happens is fair because it's it's coming from God. It has to be fair, but we don't perceive how it's fair all the time. Like when we're talking about the tragedies that have just happened, it's very hard for us to see the big picture and understand how that could possibly be fair. And how a loving God could do that. It's very hard and almost impossible for us. We just have to live with the knowledge that it's beyond us sometimes. And mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I'm not a rabbi. He, a rabbi would probably give you a better analysis. But um, that's just how I see it. But I do think in most scenarios, I try to look at them as fair enough. Even if, you know, they don't uh, go exactly my way. You know, there's enough good in everything bad that you can you can say, all right, fair enough. Uh, right. That has nothing to do with the comic. Well, I guess it does, because they're all stories from my life. Um, Got it. And they're available at fairenoughcomic.com. You can buy them. Yeah, go support independent comics, graphic novels, Harry, if, if you will. Um, but Daniel LaBelle, thank you so much. You know, you're a man of many, many talents. It's a, it's, a, it's a real privilege to have you on the podcast to talk about this uh, really cool movie, Everyone who's listening, uh, I believe you can watch The Rabbi's Cat on this app called Canopy, which with a K, and you can just plug in your library card. That's how I watched it a few times. Um, but yeah, Daniel Lobel, thanks for, for coming on the pod to discuss this. Um, thanks uh, for everyone for listening, and you can catch us on all the social medias and uh, email us at jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com if you have any questions or you have suggestions for future movies we should cover. You can catch you on social media, but you won't catch them. Because you're staying off it. I'm trying to, to <laughs> clarify. I'm trying to, you know. It's I'm not fun. so good at it, but I'm I'm trying to, like, limit my intake because I do feel like it's not great. But uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and Shabbat Shalom. Bye. Shabbat Shalom. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Harry edited this episode. Follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>